Hello, and welcome to the Sinobabble podcast. Today's episode isn't a history episode, and it's not part of the 20th Century China series. It's actually the first installment in a new series that I'm trying out. So what I want to do with this new segment is to introduce some of the themes of modern China scholarship, research and journalism, and explain some of these broader themes using a couple of example articles in each episode. So if you're interested in modern China scholarship, keep listening. If you're not interested and you don't really want to hear about new trends or academic journals or things like that, then click away now and wait patiently for the next history episode. So I thought I'd start the series off on the nice light topic of Chinese government regulation and control of the entertainment and leisure industries using the examples of celebrity culture and prostitution. The two articles I've chosen to look at are from completely different sources, but they're both really well researched and they both caught my eye as soon as I read them. The first is a research report that was published in the most recent issue of the China Quarterly, which is pretty much the most outstanding China journal out there. It's titled Truth, Good and Beauty, The Politics of Celebrity in China, and it's written by Jonathan Sullivan and Shea Cahoe. The second article was published in the latest issue of the Made in China journal, which is an open access online quarterly journal, and it's titled The Plight of Sex Workers in China from Criminalization and Abuse to Activism by Tian Tian Jiang. These are two different articles that, when I read them, seem to have similar sort of overarching themes. Both the celebrity entertainment industry and prostitution, organised or otherwise, are viewed by the government as having a huge influence on the social fabric of society. In both these cases, the Chinese government is working to mitigate the negative effects of the leisure industry on the population through official administrative channels that use a range of means that can sometimes border on coercion and often border on what most people would consider the use of force. I'm not entirely sure to what extent prostitution can be considered a part of the leisure industry, but I'm pretty comfortable putting it under that category in a general sense, given what the primary purpose of prostitution is. I think these topics are linked as they both reflect the Chinese government's moral panic and their way of thinking about and dealing with social influences that originate outside of the government or communist party. They both also touch on issues of activism in slightly different ways. So what I want to do is go through both articles and pick out the main points and themes and then kind of bring them together at the end to show how they both represent this idea of regulation and control of leisure in China. So let's start off with truth, good and beauty. So this article is about how the celebrity industry in China is both superficial, as individual stars put their influence to use by endorsing brands and products, but also forms an important part of the state morality machine, as it's used and controlled by the CCP to promote socialism and the goals of the regime. I found this article really clearly explained how and why the government controls almost all forms of media entertainment and the celebrities that it produces, from actors to sports stars to online self-made celebs and reality TV stars. The paper is divided into four main sections. The first section outlines the growth and development of the celebrity industry in China, from imperial to modern times, showing how media and PR firms in post-Mao China have grown to encompass celebrity creation and promotion, and how Chinese celebrities are usually not born, but bred in state-run conservatoires, academies and sports schools. 
One example mentioned was that of the Shichahai Sports School in Beijing, which is also known as the Cradle of Olympic Talents, and fun fact is where Jet Li trained in martial arts. The second section explains that which celebrities are allowed to represent China both on a national and an international stage is controlled at a central level mainly by two state agencies, the Ministry of Culture and the State Administration of Press, Publication, Radio, Film and Television. The purpose is basically to ensure that celebrity culture is promoting healthy and moral behaviour. Celebrities are expected to act ethically, both in public and in private, with those involved in scandals or bad business practice being blacklisted and publicly shamed. There are also official channels for controlling online gossip blogs, regulating talent agencies and monitoring celebrity endorsements, so really every single aspect of celebrity culture is heavily scrutinised by the CCP. The third section shows how the state uses this all-encompassing system of control to their advantage by using celebrities to promote patriotism and traditional virtues in order to assist the state with their goal of creating a higher quality and more civilised Chinese society. Celebrities act as a symbol that hard work, dedication, self-improvement, sacrifice and, of course, dedication to the state can all lead to success while morally bankrupt or unpatriotic acts are publicised as a sort of betrayal that tarnishes the entire nation. The final section discusses how reality TV and online stardom is also controlled by the state, despite the relative freedom with which online streaming services and video hosting platforms allow people with all sorts of talents, hobbies and opinions to become e-celebrities, or whatever the equivalent of YouTube famous is in China. Despite the range of permissible content, websites are shut down by the Ministry of Culture if they fail to properly monitor users' content, especially when said content is considered too vulgar or it challenges orthodox views and or is generally seen to have a negative influence on society, especially young people. What I really liked about this article is that it gives a broad overview of the celebrity industrial complex in China, touching on individual celebrity, different types of media and state control in just enough detail to give you a sense of the bigger picture. I want to touch on a few of the points that I feel linked to this week's overall theme of control and regulation by pulling out just a few quotes that stood out to me. So this is the first one, quote, normative values like filiality, faithfulness in marriage and the collective good are dominant social norms that celebrities are expected to conform to by the state, business and publics. So what I get from this is that celebrities have to be role models for both celebrity behaviour and regular people everyday behaviour. They're not just enacting how to be a celebrity but also how to be a good Chinese citizen. Between doing their actual work and having their private lives scrutinised by the press and their fandoms, they're being watched pretty much 24-7. And so they're probably never really acting at ease or, you know, saying what's really on their mind or what they think deep down inside. Although, who knows, maybe they are just really, really grateful for all that the state has done for them. And this gratitude is what allows them to just go ahead and behave more virtuous than anyone else. Another quote. As individual merit, material wealth and consumption have become the hallmarks of socialist progress, elevating the quality and civilization of the Chinese people 
has been identified as a prerequisite for an orderly and stable modern society under continued CCP rule, end quote. So how I've interpreted this is that it's basically Deng Xiaoping's idea of let some people get rich first in action. If people have enough money to provide for themselves and their families, then you can start worrying about elevating the character of the population. Having money, being wealthy, these things are portrayed as good, but at the same time, talking or boasting about material wealth and possessions is considered to be vulgar. It's kind of like a be seen and not heard mentality. If you live in the West, where it's considered to be unbecoming or gauche to brag about how much money you have, and you would never really catch the truly wealthy or those from old money doing that sort of thing. So this kind of paradox where wealth and prosperity are considered to be good things, yet talking about them openly is considered to be a bad thing, has been exposed in China through the reality TV system really effectively. Even though reality TV shows in China supposedly deal with everyday people, quote, contestants displaying unseemly attitudes like materialism attract public and media criticism, unquote. This is a far cry from shows like Love Island in the UK, where people are basically encouraged to exemplify the basest desires of humans, and the audience feeds off their displays of lust, envy, and greed. This isn't to say that these kinds of shows are endorsed by everyone in the UK, but generally speaking, they are celebrated in the culture. I don't watch Love Island myself, but I know what it's about because it's heavily promoted both on TV and online. When it's on, it's pretty much all people talk about. And when it's over, a lot of the contestants get their 15 minutes of fame by discussing their antics on interview shows or even getting brand deals or modelling and acting contracts with talent agencies. I really can't imagine how the CCP would feel about a show like Love Island or Big Brother, but I doubt that the people who walked around half naked, uh, displayed generally higher levels of ignorance and had sex on national TV in China would end up with clothing and makeup brand deals worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. They mention a specific show in the article, which is Fei Chang Warao, which is usually translated to If You Are The One in English, but a literal translation of the characters actually means If You Are Not Sincere, Do Not Disturb, which I think speaks volumes about the true aims of the show, or at least what the government wants the show to be portraying. Whereas the nearest British equivalent, which is the show Take Me Out, which if you've never seen it, you should, because it's awesome, Whereas Take Me Out features people basically assessing each other on their looks in order to get a nice weekend break and possibly a cheeky one night stand, Fei Chang Warao was forced to edit out any mentions of sex by the CCP and prospective life partners now have to swap money talk for promises of good in-law relations and a strong moral foundation for the rest of their relationship which should last the rest of their lives. In the first phase of the show, when contestants talked about their earnings, what cars they had, and generally showed off their wealth, the state looked upon the show unfavourably, as they felt it was spreading the wrong values and advocating materialism. In an early rendition of the show, a woman was brought under intense scrutiny because, when asked if she would like to go for a ride on a bicycle, she responded that she would rather cry in the back of a BMW. So going back to the main article, they state that 
quote, the discourse around quality and civilization has displaced the responsibility for progress to individuals while masking the class structure and other systemic inequities that determine their access to the fruits of development, end quote. In other words, the state wants people to take on the burden of creating this harmonious, modern, civilised nation that they've envisaged and just ignore the fact that the system benefits a certain group of people, usually the very wealthy and those with connections. The CCP also seems blind to the fact that this is the type of society that they've actually created themselves. Another article that I read about the show Feichang Warao said that ratings had dropped since broadcasters had been forced into promoting socialist values, with viewers complaining that the contestants speaking about their volunteering or their generosity in general was obviously fake, and pointing out that in real life, people always asked about jobs, houses and cars when looking for a potential partner. The state wants to create people who perform in the name of the collective good and act like virtuous socialist citizens, but they expect this of people who live in a system that values wealth and class hierarchy higher than morality, as people recognise that one is the route to success and the other not so much. Pretending that celebrities got to where they were through hard work and dedication to the state, as opposed to very expensive training in acting, singing and dancing, probably isn't pulling the wool over anyone's eyes either. I think people are pretty good at recognising when they're part of a system, and I think that similarly to the West, e-celebs and streamers in China are trying to push back against systemic control to allow more people to participate in the celebrity world. How successful they'll be while still remaining under the jurisdiction of the party, however, remains to be seen. So I'll leave the article there for now while we move on to the next one. The second article that I read was The Plight of Sex Workers in China, From Criminalization and Abuse to Activism. This has a completely different tone and style to the first article, and deals with quite a few heavy topics. It really gets into the nitty-gritty of the sex work industry in China, which is good, and the author's clearly gone out and spoken to sex workers and gotten to know them and what their lives are really like. It's a really eye-opening read about a topic that isn't spoken about that often, so I recommend having a look at it if you get the chance. I'll put a link to the article in the description. So the article starts off by describing how the sex work industry grew rapidly after the reform and opening up era in the 1980s, when migration between the city and countryside was relaxed, and sex workers could earn a pretty good salary working in various entertainment establishments like saunas, clubs and karaoke bars. Now, this is kind of a weird thing to admit, but I think I might actually have been to one of these places before. When I lived in mainland China, some friends and I went to a spa for the day and there were adverts for rooms that you could rent by the hour and there were lots of suggestively dressed women and young men too, just sort of floating about, not really doing much. I can't say for sure, but there were certainly always rumours that you could find such services at such locations. So I would say I'm probably 80% sure that it was that kind of establishment. Anyway, the article points out that the CCP takes a feminist stance when it comes to sex work, basically saying that sex workers only exist because they've been forced into it, and therefore the sex workers themselves are in need of rescuing, re-education and rehabilitation. Now, I had to read that sentence a few times to understand the logic before coming to the conclusion that there basically wasn't any. 
to me, it seems that if someone's being forced into something, then surely it's the mindset of the forcer that needs to be changed, not the foresee. I've read similar things about the CCP's unique approach to feminism. For example, tackling the widespread problem of men taking mistresses, or arunai, by targeting the mistresses and giving them lessons on morality and correct behaviour, and telling her to stop what she's doing. So that basically encapsulates the CCP's idea of modern feminism. Uh, But I digress. So every single aspect of sex work in China is illegal. Forcing people into prostitution, providing a venue for sex work, selling sex and buying sex. The laws are pretty comprehensive and due to the nature of policing and the law in China, investigations and punishments are dealt with swiftly, severely and with very little oversight. This means that raids and arrests often lead to a harsh, sometimes violent treatment of sex workers and fear of the police causes sex workers to respond in a few ways. One is to use fake names and IDs, making them vulnerable to abuse and in some cases rape and even murder. Two, they end up working for the police, both as informants and as prostitutes, as they feel that they have no choice but to acquiesce to the police demands. Three, they turn to the criminal underworld, providing their services for free to gang members in return for protection from the law. Or four, they pay extortionate fines or bribes to the police to avoid being sent to rehab centres. So on these rehab centres, the thousands of women who are sent to rehabilitation centres end up doing their labour for free, making disposable chopsticks, cheap toys... They have all their freedoms stripped away and they actually have to pay for the facility's running fees. Apparently, and unsurprisingly, most of them end up back in sex work after the six months to two years that they spend in the centre. Also, because the police use possession of condoms as proof of illicit activity, many sex workers feel compelled to have sex without protection, leading to high risk of infection, for which they then have to be tested and treated, leading to further abuses by healthcare professionals who can withhold results or publish these results without consent from the patient. The thing that I found most interesting about this article was how sex work was characterised by the state and law enforcement. The article quotes official sources as describing prostitution as a social evil that erodes the socialist spiritual civilization. There we have again the word civilised or civilization. In other words, it's an active agent that has a direct effect on society and morality, and that effect is negative and therefore needs to be tightly controlled, if not completely eradicated. It was this wording that linked both of these articles together for me, and shed some light on the way that the CCP thinks when it's formulating regulations and implementing them. Despite the fact that they cover very different topics, both articles demonstrate the Chinese government's need to closely monitor and control influences on the moral fibre of society. This control encompasses all forms of entertainment, though laws and regulations differ depending on the actual activity. As media, in general, is de facto controlled by the party, it makes sense that the state would control who can participate in the space, what they can say, and how they can behave on and off screen. When it comes to illegal activities, the state is still concerned with social influence, but the illicit nature of these forms of entertainment means it's more open to overt corruption by officials of the state, and the methods of control are less stringent and can be more violent and oppressive. 
However, in all cases, surveillance, regulation, suppression and punishment are all administered by official arms of the state apparatus. The state regulates those in the leisure and entertainment industry because they believe the inherent influence entertainers possess set an example that will cause the wider public to behave in a specific way. The government isn't just concerned with controlling what people say online or what they watch in their spare time. They want to get all the way down to how people think, what they think is acceptable behaviour and thus how they will act in order to transform them into a civilised society. Now, we keep coming back to this word civilised. So if you actually go around China, you'll see a lot of official public signs and displays that have this word civilised or wenming in the slogan. For example, let the elderly and pregnant have your seat, help make China more civilised. Or wait for the green man to show before crossing the road, let's all be civilised. Or there'll be a sign in a restaurant telling you how to eat in a more civilised manner. Which is always really ironic because 99% of people will be eating in entirely the opposite way to what the poster describes. It's clear that the government is trying to link thought with action, to create law-abiding, virtuous civilians, and to mould the Chinese populace into the perfect socialist citizens. It also shows how the burden of responsible behaviour isn't just put on these consumer-slash-civilian people, but also on those providing the entertainment and the entertainers themselves. Entertainers are expected to behave according to the same specific social code that regulates both their professional conduct and their public conduct, and that of ordinary people as well. Stepping out of line can mean loss of work, hefty fines, or even imprisonment for an entertainer. And the celebrity agents or the nightclub owners, whoever employs said entertainers, can find themselves on the wrong side of the party if they don't bring their employees under control. I mentioned that both of these articles touched on activism in different ways. In the article on celebrity, it explains that certain celebrities use their platform to promote certain causes such as LGBT rights or to criticise and comment on political issues. There are many people working for the abolition or at least the scaling down of the punishment for sex work, from politicians to NGOs to women's rights activists. What is immediately noticeable is that both forms of activism are being carried out within state-sanctioned spheres, where the party can closely monitor what's being said, how it's being said, and by whom. When advocates for a cause go too far, or forget just how reliant on the state they are for their existence, they're quickly brought back down to reality with the full force of the state machine, having their fame or celebrity removed, being arrested, and having their work scrubbed and their presence deleted. Even the altruistic work within the entertainment industry is scrutinised, regulated and controlled by the state. Anything that interferes with or undermines the regime's control of creating a civilised society is either eradicated or, at the very least, brought in line very quickly. In the case of celebrity, regulation means that celebrities can exist, they can even pop up somewhat spontaneously, But at the end of the day, their influence is controlled and can be basically deleted by the government if they deem it necessary. In the case of prostitution, it's interesting that the author actually concludes by stating that China may move towards a path of legalisation. Personally, I think it would be really out of character for the Chinese government and the party to even consider this type of move. It's pretty hard to make an argument for the positive influence of prostitution on society. 
especially when soliciting a prostitute has been used in so many instances to purge corrupt officials or defame and ostracize celebrities in the entertainment industry itself. I think if it does move towards legalization, it will be interesting to see how they justify it within the context of creating a moral civilized society, as that's really the party's bottom line, at least for the present and certainly under Xi Jinping's leadership. And with that, I think I'll leave this episode here. I think that leaves you guys with plenty of food for thought. Thanks so much for listening. This was supposed to be relatively short when compared with the history episodes, but I think it ended up being around the same length, so I will try and work on being a bit more concise. Also, I had originally intended on publishing this episode earlier. I'd actually finished writing it over a week ago, but as I record it now, today is Wednesday the 13th of June, and if you didn't know, the extradition protests in Hong Kong have been in full swing for a few days now. As I'm actually based in Hong Kong, the extradition protests have taken my full attention and I'm working now to try and cover some of the details and hopefully try and get some voices from the protests, uh, talk to some of the protesters, some local people who live here, maybe some journalists, whoever I can interest in an interview basically, and see if I can provide some content for you guys either in audio or in video format. So hopefully that's something to look forward to if you're interested in what's going on in Hong Kong at the moment. Otherwise, there's been great international coverage. Um, I recommend personally the SCMP, that's the South China Morning Post, and also the BBC has been doing a good job, and CNN. That's it for this week, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you tune in to the next one. Bye.